everyone. Welcome to Beats, Rye, and Types. This week, we're going to talk a little bit about what's new and what's happening right now. Uh, that track you just heard was Silver by Caribou, uh, one of my favorite artists. It was an album that came out last year and just kind of blew me away with how unique it was and just I wanted to jam it all summer long and all or all winter long whatever for the entire year basically what's up MRB how you doing I'm good I'm good how are you I'm doing great I like that song too it's a good one it's a good album I wasn't sure of it at first but then I got really into it so we're gonna talk about food and computers yeah we'll talk about food and computers again <laughs> how about it in which order what should we talk about first how about you tell us what's 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 new for computology uh, there's a lot of new and interesting things in the land of computology it's what keeps me something that keeps me going um, but lately something that has really been uh, exciting and interesting to me has been playing around with some automated theorem provers and trying to to connect them to normal computer programs and see what kind of results that you can get out of them. So the idea is that imagine like instead of writing tests or even generating tests, you could interact with some third-party computer program that where if you could sort of compile the questions that you had or the model that you were trying to build in your program and pass it to this uh, third-party program, then it could tell you you know, the range of these values will always be this or this, or there are guarantees that uh, this program will behave in a certain way. It's pretty cutting edge. Uh, the technology behind it, it's they're called SMT solvers, so Satisfiability Modulo Theorem Solvers, which... Are they working with specific languages right now, or is it just, just a general theory... It's a general, it's a general purpose uh, theorem prover. The idea is that um, previously computers had, we had very fast theorem provers that could work on very simple like Boolean relations. So you could say it could, it could prove kind of very complex uh, logical expressions, but only ones that were, that consist of very simple operators. So just ands and ors and ifs and thens and things like that, where the, there have been some very interesting advancements made now where you can uh, ask these solvers to work in much richer domains. So instead of only being able to talk about things in terms of true and false, it, can, it knows about you know, uh, whole numbers, real numbers. You can actually also give it more complex data types. So to answer your question, some Haskell programmers are playing with it. Uh, there's a library that, that has been released uh, for Haskell called SBV, where you can hook Haskell up to this theorem prover. And what's cool about it is that you could write a normal Haskell program with your types and just something simple like a, if you had a person data type, right, it would have some fields for name and age and whatever. So instead of uh, compiling your program with a concrete type like name that would be a string or age that would be an integer, you can just replace that with this other abstract type and then sort of write a little DSL um, kind of program to ask the theorem prover things about the program that you're writing. Interesting. Yeah, so it's very futuristic. It's funny, we always write these computer programs and feel like we're being very advanced and we're telling this computer what to do. But in fact, the computer could tell us more mathematically true things about our programs than probably we could in the same amount of time. Is that sort of the idea to you? Or is yeah. That- uh, you know, it, it, the problem, the challenge with these kinds of things is like, it's not going to like, not going to make your web app easier to write or anything like that, right? It's a much lower level thing. But yeah, essentially proving correctness or, you know, 
understanding behavior of code you write is very hard, right? Like another way of saying what you stated is that it's very easy to write programs that eclipse your ability to comprehend all of the behavior that they're capable of, right? Like you can write a big class in your programming language and, you know, you don't really know what it does, but it would be really cool if you could write that as a model and pass it to some third-party program and say, okay, describe the behavior of this program to me, or at least this fragment of this program. Yeah, people are doing really interesting things with it. It's kind of crazy where you can write models for it, and then it can, like, spit code out. So you can, like, write... You can write things in this weird theorem prover DSL, and then, you know, it can generate code that satisfies the model that you asked for. It's really... It seems like that's a step towards this idea that you could take a language and get some proofs from it, then the other way is potentially true too. And not only that, but you could potentially have some very terse language for describing a really correct program that then you could computer could just write for you basically and yeah that's a that's a thing that one of the problems that everyone always has with generated code is also just sometimes not just too verbose but it just it creates more code that's also not correct or also not perfect or whatever whatever words you want to describe it or clear or whatever you know the idea that you could have something terse and know that it also is correct on the other side, you know, that the, that the computer proved that for you is really interesting. Yeah, that's actually some of the coolest research is in terms of what they call running programs backwards like that. Like, so running programs backwards or generating programs from theorems is a, is a pretty active area of research, which is really cool because an example is you can have a solver, you can have a program written for your solver that solves Sudoku puzzles, right? But it can also just generate, you know, solutions uh, or generate puzzles themselves given, you know, certain constraints. So it's really interesting to be able to run things both ways like that. Right now, you know, it's mostly used for very simple things. A lot of the applications are in security. So they use they use these kinds of programs to analyze like a subset of C uh, to prove pointer safety or, or things like that, right? So it's really interesting if you think about like these big programming languages like Haskell uh, or Idris or any of these big programming languages actually uh, compile to a smaller intermediate language and then that intermediate language is what gets turned into like machine code for the executable. So the idea is that as long as you can get these really large programs to be expressed in terms of these much smaller subsets of that larger language, then it's much more tractable problem to prove them correct. So people are doing really interesting stuff with that right now. So that's what's, that's what's hot right now in computology <laughs> for me. What about you? What's What's been keeping you interested these days yeah there's like a wide range of things it's funny i'm just thinking about it because you know we've worked and known each other for so long and i feel like we both we approach problems and approach uh what's interesting from different completely different sides of things so like i think i'm always a very practical person when it comes to what i'm interested in like because i feel like i'm I want to get my hands dirty whether or not it's like the right thing to do or if it's 
pure or smart, basically, <laughs> whatever it is, you know? And I feel like you are, you know, and I feel like that's why we challenge each other because you from the other side of it were always, here is the theory behind this and here's the interesting thing and I want to learn everything there is to, about this, whether or not it's actually practical, which is, you know, in the end of the day, it's it could be very practical, but the distance between that might be a lot farther too. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think that was... Uh... That happens a lot. I I don't have I don't have to get my hands dirty to uh, stay interested. I just I get my brain dirty. <laughs> no, but for real, I mean that's cool. I I, I always admire people that um, are more motivated to learn from doing. So so on that note, what's what's yeah, the? Yeah, uh, I mean so yeah. Recently, I've been working mainly in op- operations world for a while now, writing mostly purely server-side code and also just maintaining this and helping to maintain this large infrastructure that we have. I don't think containers is anything new. The idea of containers on, on a server is anything new. It's been around for a long time. But what interests me uh, and what interests, has been interesting a lot of people is that these new tools around managing containers have gotten so much more advanced than they ever were before. And I'm, I'm surprised that it took that long for it to happen, considering how long LXC and a lot of other these container technologies and what's been going on at Google have, have been around. But Docker and CoreOS and that whole world around that is really fascinating to me. It's just a really, really, really different way of looking at computers, you know, and how you build large applications in in the cloud i should like whisper that uh but you know the cloud (laughs) it's it's really just interesting because you a lot of things that you're used to from a typical (coughs) devops um approach i feel like based on what we've been doing for the past 30 years or whatever since the beginning of running servers it's like you have these you picture things as boxes and you install software on boxes and then you run your application on boxes and but containers make force you to think about things in a lot different way and i don't know if i'm bought into the whole microservices thing but i really love the idea of this kind of ephemeral application environment that you have to spin up and run and it doesn't matter a container can be an application it's almost the same thing and i think they've it's gotten it's gotten a lot more advanced in the last year and things have been coming along pretty quickly i think there's still some little bit that's missing that someone's gonna build in the next year that's gonna kind of tie all this technology together that's really gonna make it a no-brainer to build applications in this in this environment and i don't know if it i feel like it's sitting it's somewhere between a framework and a programming language and a environment to build those things in. There's some there's some missing piece where someone's going to write or build something on top of existing technology. And that's probably what it is. Connect all these dots together where it's like, this is the way you build programs in this containered environment that makes it dumb easy to do and build web applications or server-side applications, whatever it is. I feel like Go is an amazing language for it, but there's some still something missing like I don't know. Like I, I don't know what it is, but there's some there's some missing piece there that someone's gonna build, and I'm I'm just like kind of holding my breath, waiting for that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 
I think, yeah. I mean, a lot of it's still very manual and somewhat clumsy and some some aspect of making the orchestration of all that stuff uh, simpler. And like you said, just promoting adoption and making it like a no-brainer to work in that world, I think will be really interesting. When that tipping point comes, it will be interesting for sure to see what comes out of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel like it's it's so close. Like it's almost, it works really well, but I think in order to get, you know, kind of the average, uh, average is a bad word, but just everyday developer or the everyday team to really adopt something like Docker and not shoot themselves in the foot with it. There has to be some level of, yeah, just best practices built into a tool or a framework for the the layer up from Docker, whatever that is. And the layer below too, I think the application layer too, because it's kind of, yeah, I mean, it's similar I think early days of Ruby or basically any programming language where everyone is building their own way of doing things. And to me, that means that there's something missing, you know, and someone, right. someone's going to, someone's going to build it and someone's going to do it. So it's exciting times, but if every single organization has their own like orchestration software and deployment software, you know, that, that there's something missing. Yeah. I think that's insightful. So food-wise, what's what's exciting for you right now, or what what's the new new hotness? <laughs> hotness. I just I recently moved to uh, the Washington D.C. area and have been getting to know food down here a little bit, and that's been cool. I've been uh, definitely pleasantly surprised. I didn't really know what to expect. Some stuff that's been really great has been uh, just restaurant-wise. An older restaurant actually that Maya and I love is Haleo, which is one of the you know is it the first Jose Andres restaurant? It's one of them, and it's just always consistently awesome. I've been there to grab a drink and a snack. I've been there for dinner. I went with like 12 people after closure conj and we all did a tasting menu. I've been there for a bunch of different scenarios, like for lunch and just always awesome. Always surprising. Cocktail wise, best Cuba Libre I've ever had. Um, uh, Really good. It's super awesome the way that they presented there no no spoilers everyone needs to go get one so you can see what it's like they have a whole section of uh, gin and tonics too including a barrel aged one that's awesome there's a very good uh, ramen place called Toki Underground uh, that has a uh, shop or a little stall in this market down here and that's been really fun to go to they sell bao and they sell a variety of different um, noodle soups and stuff that they make there and they also have a little market called honeycomb that is in this like a little grocer that's in the same market like near it and they sell their fresh ramen they sell fresh ramen noodles that they make uh they sell um the buns for pork buns and stuff like that and a bunch of other really good pickles like is it a specific style of ramen or is it just kind of international uh the 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 soup that he sells at the mall, he's done a bunch of different ones. I had like a Cambodian style one once at the restaurant. It's more, um, yeah, more traditional Japanese ramen. It's nothing, nothing fancy or uh, fusiony or anything like that. The grocer also makes awesome pickles, like crazy, crazy awesome pickles, like a jar of basic of pickled green papaya that was basically like a green papaya salad in a jar, pickled green cauliflower with some like red 
gochujang thing that they also make. They also sell like an entire head of cabbage pickled like in a bucket. Like you could just piece out with like a bucket, a whole cabbage head like pickled all like a coleslaw like a, bucket or like a yeah 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 like a mini coleslaw <laughs> bucket. Yeah, I think <laughs> he's got awesome. them in like a barrel somewhere or something. They make they make their own um, spice blends. What's the, what's the Japanese uh, spice oh, blend? Togarashi. Yeah, they make their own togarashi. I love that stuff. So th- that's been really great. I really like, I found some good beer. Right Proper Brewing Company is a really good brewery down here that I've been really enjoying going to. And they have really good bar food and awesome cheese. Uh, and then one more, I like a place called Eat the Rich, which is a heavy metal themed <laughs> like oyster and oyster bar, basically, that also has a bunch of really good food reminded me of uh, bar tartine a little bit in terms of the menu stuff uh, but awesome cocktails that's the place that I was getting a bunch of alcoholic slushies at over the summer when we moved down here they made uh, made to order with Vitamixes behind the counter alcoholic slushies are incredible did I tell you that story? Yeah, you did, yeah. Yeah, and I asked the guy if he could make me a custom one. I thought I was being clever, and I was like, oh, maybe you could make me something with, like, I don't remember what I said, Amaro in it or something. And he's like, no. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, cool. What, you know, I'm just curious. What's up with that? He's like, oh, because it's really hard to make, and it takes me a while to perfect the recipe because it's, it's frozen, and it's hard to get the balance right and all this shit. And I was like, respect, man. That's cool. Um, I kept felt kind of cool to get shut down on that. Yeah, so that's been my little, my, that's my DC status update. Uh, what about you? What, what's, what's been uh, interesting you? There's this thing that once I left New York a, a couple years ago and I moved to San Francisco or Berkeley area, living out of side of basically Brooklyn and Manhattan, outside of that nexus, you can't judge a book by its cover like in terms of restaurants like in in brooklyn if a restaurant looks like really corny and chances <laughs> are it's gonna be really corny and if it looks really crappy chances are it's gonna be really crappy and if it looks like pretentious and high-end there's like a 50 50 chance that it's gonna be good <laughs> but once i once i went to berkeley it completely changed because there'd be like these really 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 tacky looking restaurants with like red lights and like weird reflective metal tables that would serve like the best classic food or, or really good Vietnamese food or something like that. Now that I moved to this, uh, I'm in Kingston now in Hudson Valley. It's, it's similar. There's like very much the same kind of vibe up here where there's a lot of really good food. And I mean, it's great because all the produce from that we get in New York is all from around here. And so we have great fresh produce. I mean, nothing compared to California, but and then great local meat and stuff like that. So there's a bunch of great restaurants based on that. But there's also my favorites are these like rare finds or little things that I get really excited about because they're so weird. So one that Cat, my wife and I have been frequented a bunch over the summer uh, when we didn't have a kitchen and we just were had to go out every night was this place called Crazy Bowls with a Z. <laughs> uh, I think I told you about this place, but it's it's literally it's in the parking lot of a Walmart. But that doesn't describe it because the Walmart is on this hill and it literally has the best view of the Catskill Mountains like in all of Kingston are one of the best views. It's like up on this hill and it's got this best view. Crazy Bulls is in the parking lot and you can look out the window and watch the sunset over the Catskills. It's called Crazy Bulls with a Z and it's Mexican Asian fusion. 
literally they just sort of like Mexican food, Asian food, Asian with a Z too. You know, it's like it's like quote unquote Asian food, quote unquote Mexican food. And there's literally like four hundred different options on the menu of how you can combine these crazy bowls. We were really, really skeptical of it, obviously, because also they have like some of the weirdest kind of lame decor, but it's run by this young couple. And it, it's like really good. I would say it's really good if you order the right thing because since there are so many options, you can get like Mexican with cumin lamb, Mexican rice with cumin lamb, and bok choy. It's like, okay, that's kind of weird. Um, yeah. And teriyaki sauce. It's actually really good. And it's one of these things where it's like that, that place could not survive in New York City. You right. Know? Yeah. Yeah, dude. I know what you mean. I know what you mean about that. I've had similar, similar experiences. <laughs> Mainly, we've just been cooking so much. It's been kind of crazy now that we have an actual kitchen to cook out of. And I've just been reading through a ton of cookbooks and like really enjoying a bunch of the stuff that's been coming out. We talked about this before, but I divide my cookbooks into two sections. The cooking cookbooks where there's like actually good recipes that you can that you can cook out of on a regular night. And then there's the aspirational cookbooks where yeah. there's like no chance that or not no chance, but it's very unlikely. But I love getting these aspirational cookbooks, even if I'm never going to kick out of them. And one of the ones that just came out a couple months ago is a Sean Brock cookbook Heritage. And I've been oh, reading yeah. it a ton and it's the way he talks about and reveres food it it, i mean it's kind of the apex of of heritage slow food movement is this guy in south carolina doing a noma thing but in south carolina of like he only cooks even like the grains and everything he gets has to be from this like very very tight radius around where he cooks and he's gone to such extremes to like maintain that and live within that constraint something about that just gets me excited and fascinates me of like this person pushing the envelope living in this very very tight constraint yeah we're trying we're trying to go down there to go eat at his restaurant yeah same soon yeah. someday he was on Mind of a Chef, and I don't, did you watch the Sean Brock Mind of a Chefs? I only saw a few. I didn't get to see all of them. I got to figure out how to watch the rest of them. It's on. It's on Netflix now, but you could you should check it out. Oh, it um, is. Oh, okay. There's an episode where he just makes rice, like the Carolina Gold rice, but he calls it Carolina ice cream. Charleston ice cream, I think, is the name of the recipe. But basically, it's just rice. But it's cooked with such like reverence and precision. And you obviously have, you can't just like buy rice in the supermarket. You have to use this Anson Mills rice. And so I, I ordered some. I haven't made it yet. It's in the freezer. I'll have to report back when I actually make it. But the recipe is basically like you take this rice, you cook it really slowly in chicken broth, and then you lay it out in a pan, and then you bake it with like, a stick of butter basically I, I haven't tasted it but I want like it's one of those things where you could visually just see and taste the I'm, I'm thinking about it now and drooling just thinking about this but <laughs> it it's sounds like very good this rice the recipes in the book I have to try it that and his like fried chicken recipe look looks like kind of insane so at some point I'll have to do that too yeah certainly it's amazing when people are able to commit to those constraints and produce such uh, produce such interesting things it's really cool yeah, I feel like it's a lesson to try to tie it back into programming. There's like a lesson there of I think we sometimes as programmers like try to like want to do everything at once and work everywhere at once and have when we push something it's like I want to have this and have it work everywhere or something like that, but it's it's interesting to think about what would you do if you only had not even your favorite tool or you couldn't you couldn't only use these 15 things or something like that to build a program how would you do it or i mean there's no such thing as like local in programming but it's interesting to think about what what the parallel would be and how you would push yourself 
Yeah, I mean, you know, working, it, it, there is an interesting parallel between that idea and kind of what I was talking about at the end of the solver thing, right? It's like if you can express your program in terms of composite or a composition of simple models, uh, then you can reap the benefits of uh, being able to apply these advanced techniques. So that there is a kind of uh, interesting parallel there. It's all about possibilities, right? I mean, that's sure. the thing that that's why that's what's interesting about Rene Redzepi and these people that that's why they constrain themselves, right? It's not only because they're masochists, but <laughs> it's, it's to say like what I don't know what's going to happen when I give myself this constraint and I stick to it. You know, a big reason that you do that is to pursue excellence within those constraints is to, is to basically roll the dice and see what you can create out of almost nothing um, or seemingly almost nothing, right? And you end up finding things that you never thought that you would find. I remember one of the, I don't remember which, which show it was at Rene Rene Zeppi was on, maybe it was the mind of a chef that he was on, where he was foraging for some shoots by the side of a lake, and he pulls some shoot out, and he's like, it tastes like cilantro, oh my god, I finally can have something that tastes like cilantro, because he, you know, he just never had that, and probably wanted to use something that had that flavor so many times, and that's a cool way to think about it, too, he, like, has this internal inventory of, like, a mapping between what's available within those constraints and what would be available outside of them. So For sure. it's, a cool, it's a cool way to look at it. Obviously, local has the, the idea of local has like a big climate-based concept of, you know, this is something that's important to do because we're really trying to think about what the future is going to be like if we, if we can't fly food in from or fish in from Japan every day and stuff like that. But I feel like it's also, there's something about it that's purely about trying to focus like it's not just constraint but it's focus too it's like we want to bring not just a theme but like a pure idea forward through this cooking sean brock talks about that a lot in his book about how this is the food of the low country like it's not i'm riffing on it and i'm trying to refine it and make it more perfect whatever that is or more pure but at the same time like i didn't invent cooking rice with butter you know i just figured out how to revive that and push that forward and really focus on it to the point where it's something elevated and something more than the sum of its parts something that we should all pursue i think thanks for listening to beats ryan types we're gonna try to do this pretty regularly right let us know what you think and let's hear that outro music (laughs) 